Americans have called upon us to marshal the forces of decency, the forces of fairness, to marshal the forces of science, and the forces of hope in the great battles of our time. The battle to control the virus, the battle to build prosperity, the battle to secure your family's health care, the battle to achieve racial justice and root out systemic racism in this country. I mean, that's that's like that's like that's Hollywood, fantastic, Hollywood. Yeah, that's right there. That, that should be the opening. <laughs> There's only one way to go from there. <laughs> All right, hello everybody. It's been a while. A really remember long us? while. <laughs> Our last episode was in July. I thought it was August, but it was actually in July, so it was even longer than I realized. Whew. Basically, with the pandemic and work and the presidential election, I did not have the emotional or mental bandwidth for a podcast. So, but I made a pact with Dr. Rupp that if Joe Biden won the election, then when we would have to revive the podcast again. So here we are. <laughs> are, are we sure he's won, though? Are we? Uh, oh, that's a fair the point. Legal, the legal votes. If you just count the legal. <laughs> are we jumping the gun here? Yeah. Is yeah. over? No. Uh, so I think we're calling this season two of Last Week in Medicine. Um, which is appropriate because we started the podcast just over a year ago in November of 2019. We were so innocent and naive back then, completely unaware of the storm that was coming in 2020. <laughs> That's completely true. And actually, if, if our viewers who's ever out there wants to go back and have a good laugh, listen to our first couple podcasts about COVID. <laughs> <laughs> when we were like, oh, the flu kills more people. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. we're up to 40 cases. I'm so scared. <laughs> that's, that's aged well. Yeah, not aged well at all. So now we're up to 11 million cases in oh the United God. States and 240,000 deaths. And we're still averaging about 1,000 deaths per day in the United States. So that's not great. But we're going to end with hope. We said we were going to end with hope. Yeah, we'll we'll start with fear and and terror and no, and then like like the 2020 election really did turn into a, a real nail biter. Like I was just like Tuesday night, I was like, this can't be happening again. I was just despondent and spent like the next several days just kind of compulsively refreshing the different news sites on my laptop and. You know, ultimately, democracy triumphed over fascism, <laughs> thanks to Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Georgia. <laughs> no thanks to Utah. Good work, Utah. No thanks to our home state. Oh, yeah, we, yeah. Our, um, agreed. Nebraska. That was way too much of a nail-biter. Actually, yeah, Nebraska, second district or whatever. Well, they delivered one vote, yeah. That's yeah. Weird the system. Homeland. But yeah, so I think Trump's attempt at an autocratic breakthrough has failed, um, but obviously he still hasn't conceded and he's challenging all the vote counts in multiple states that he lost. And I think so far he's lost 25 lawsuits. <laughs> so he's like setting some records there. What's a little 25 though, you know? Just, why not? Apparently the new strategy is to get Republican controlled states to refuse to certify election results. I did so. Super nice democracy we have here. 
I'm hoping that right. he just, like moves to Mar-a-Lago soon, like around the holidays, and then just like we never hear about him again. Would that be nice? Well, obviously, you'll be subscribing to Trump TV when that comes out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, man. Uh, totally agreed. We were in communication, obviously, on election night. My wife basically forbade me from from watching coverage, though, because it was too anxiety provoking. Oh, I wonder if maybe we should do a study on that, like how many uh, mental health crises there were within election night and uh, the following three days. Very good. All hey, right. What's our Baby Yoda update? He's back, isn't he? <laughs> oh, he's back. And uh, Baby Yoda has been canceled for attempting genocide. I don't know if you've watched any of the new season of Mandalorian. I have not. He tries to like eat these frog eggs. It's like this frog lady's her last line of, you know, posterity, and he just starts eating her eggs. <laughs> and it was really, like, disturbing. I was like, man, that little effort. But, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, really nothing's changed, right? We're back to the Mandalorian. We had the NBA bubble, which I thought was an unmitigated success. LeBron Absolutely. got another title. And nobody, nobody got COVID. That was amazing. It is, actually, if you think about it. But, uh, yes, and we'll be able to talk about the NBA in one month. I've already been skiing a couple times, so we're just picking up right where we left off. All the old topics. Nothing, <laughs> nothing's changed. Uh, yeah, let's see what else happened. Oh, I think it, it's worth mentioning that crazy hurricane force windstorm that tore through Salt Lake back in September. Mm -hmm. got, like thousands of trees, and we didn't have power for five days. I had to take my pet tortoise, Ned, to my mother-in-law's house just to keep him warm because <laughs> she still had electricity. <laughs> and this gigantic elm tree like fell on top of our neighbor's house across the street. So Dr. Babel was telling me that a storm like that is called a derecho or derecho. I haven't heard that word before. I have heard that because supposedly Nebraska also had one like back in the spring. Um, and my parents were trying to tell me about that. But yeah um you're like a hey, boomer yeah all right nice <laughs> exactly. <great show. laughs> we were one of the last it felt like we were one of the last pods i'm sure if you ask anyone um, who was without power for any extended period of time they will tell you they were the last ones but we were within like the last ten thousand to get power back we had like a, there were like a hundred ninety thousand people down and yeah our little pod of like six or whatever um was pretty late getting back so um brought that was... power was targeting you guys <laughs> yeah yeah i <laughs> anyway it doesn't yeah but uh six days without power and sort of using candlelight and headlamps to live your life is uh an experience in the midst of a pandemic yeah it was like man could this year get any worse <laughs> we're almost done almost done with this year yeah and yeah, I, I, it can get worse because I'm still doing homeschool with my kids and it's a nightmare. <laughs> it can always hurt you more. <laughs> Isn't yeah. that a house of God, Tenet? <laughs> we did get another pet in our household. We got a, a kitten. My kids named it Katie. Katie the kitty. She's oh, okay. Nice. And then uh, today... Before we go further, I'm not sure if I should let things go further before mentioning that I'm my, my first child's due in a month, right? That's yeah, I, I was going to let you announce that. I was like, <laughs> can I say something? I should probably let you say something. So, Maybe that should have been the first thing that we talked about prior to uh, Katie. Kirsten, if you're listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, to edit this. I could put that announcement at the beginning. Yeah, of the podcast. 
Um, so anyway, that's yes. Rob's gonna be a dad. We're very excited about that. It's coming around Christmas time. Yes, um, depending on which date you believe, it's like the 25th, the 28th, or the 31st, or something. So, anytime in there. Is child. <laughs> yeah. Never going to get a proper birthday party. I know. That sucks, doesn't it? And by Christmas. Oh, well. And then if we have other ones that they argue about how many presents the one gets for its birthday, I mean, it's a lose lose, really. Kids are the best. <laughs> <laughs> going to be a great dad. <laughs> all right so should we talk about medicine now i guess yeah okay. might as well huh? has anything changed in medicine in the last four months i was perusing the major journals last week and it was basically all the same stuff like the same articles that we were talking about six months ago but now they have final results so for example the uh, adaptive covid19 treatment trial or act one we talked about this one back in June. They had a preliminary report back then. Um, and now they finally published the, the full report. So the old act one. Now we're on act three. There might even be an act four. I don't know. Probably but, is. So just to review for our listeners, remdesivir, which you're probably all getting a lot of experience using now. RNA polymerase inhibitor originally developed for Ebola was not effective for that. They tried it in China early on in the pandemic, uh, published that in April in the Lancet, and they did not find a benefit on time to improvement or mortality, but it was a very small sample size because they weren't able to enroll enough patients because they accidentally got local control of the virus. Good for them. <laughs> Must the totalitarian nice. regime shut it down and <laughs> controlled things. It's weird when you have this like sense of collective sacrifice for the whole, you know, <laughs> when the citizens just do their duty. It's a weird thing. I wouldn't know what that feels like. I don't know what that feels like either. But anyway, obviously a smaller sample size meant they were underpowered to detect the benefits. So we needed a bigger trial and, and that came out shortly after that. The ACT-1 trial was funded by the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. And it was a large placebo controlled and blinded randomized trial um, and like I said, we talked about that preliminary report back in June. Uh, they at that time reported that patients hospitalized with COVID um, in those patients from Desivere led to a shorter time to recovery compared to placebo. Uh, it was 11 days versus 15 days. And the way they determined that was uh, patients were assessed daily on this eight point ordinal scale. Um, and ordinal uh, yeah, do you miss the ordinal scales? And they were defined as recovered if they were no longer hospitalized or if they were hospitalized but no longer required medical care or oxygen. And so there seems to be... What's that? Waiting for the sniff. <laughs> yeah, basically they're waiting for sniff or like they were probably still in the hospital because they wanted to prevent the virus from spreading. So there seemed to be a trend towards mortality benefit at 14 days in the remdesivir groups. It was 7.1 versus 11.9% but they had pretty wide confidence intervals uh, across one. So it wasn't really statistically significant. And, but a lot of people were excited about that. So yeah. obviously since that time, we've been giving remdesivir to basically everyone in the hospital with COVID, especially if they have an oxygen requirement. <laughs> um, so November 5th, they published the final report. Uh, the final report included 1,062 patients in the trial, 541 were assigned to remdesivir, 521 to placebo. 
I think it's interesting to note that 90% of the patients met criteria for severe COVID disease, which basically meant that they had an ordinal scale of five or higher, meaning that they required at least oxygen. So if you need oxygen, you technically have severe disease. 41% of the patients had an ordinal scale of five. So that's like the patients that we're mostly taking care of on the floor. They just need some supplemental oxygen. 18% uh, required non-invasive ventilation or high flow oxygen. That's ordinal scale six. And then, uh, and then 26 or 27% required mechanical ventilation or ECMO. And that was number seven on the scale. And so they had a, a you know, most of the patients were fairly sick in this trial. And uh, the results for the primary outcome were basically the same as the preliminary report that we discussed before. So patients in the remdesivir arm had a shorter time to recovery than patients in the placebo arm, 10 days versus 15 days, uh, with a rate re ratio for recovery of 1.29, which had a p-value of less than 0 0.001. And uh, when they looked at just the patients in the severe disease stratum, which was basically you had a scale of five or higher, then the time to recovery was 11 days versus 18 days with the rate ratio for recovery of 1.31. Uh, when they looked at patients in the sickest category, so those on ventilators and ECMO, um, they had a rate ratio for recovery of 0.98, so really no difference uh, in, in that subgroup. Um, but the medium time to recovery couldn't really be fully estimated in, in patients in that category um, because the follow-up period was too short. Mm -hmm. um, so then they, they also had Kaplan-Meier estimates of mortality at day 15 and day uh, 29. So at day 15, it was 6.7% in the remdesivir arm and 11.9% in the placebo arm, which looks really great. Um, the hazard ratio was 0 0.55, um, which was statistically significant at that point. But then out at day 29, there was no longer any statistical difference in mortality between the groups. So it was kind of a transient effect, I guess. Uh, the largest difference in mortality was seen in patients with a baseline ordinal scale of five, so those patients that just need oxygen. And patients in the remdesivir arm uh, received oxygen for fewer days, 13 versus 21. Uh, and the incident of new oxygen use in the patients not on oxygen at the time of enrollment was lower in remdesivir. So basically patients who got admitted tested positive but didn't need oxygen, if they got remdesivir, they were less likely to need oxygen in the future compared to the ones who got placebo. And adverse events were similar between the groups. So I think overall this study uh, was a really well done study. You know, it's a gold standard, big study with a placebo control and it was blinded. It didn't show mortality benefit necessarily, but it did show that there was a shorter time to improvement. So I kind of think of it as like the Tamiflu of COVID-19, where not necessarily saving lives per se, but you're getting people better faster, which right now is so important when the hospitals are totally full and you need those beds and you need people to leave the hospital one day. So I think, you know, I'm in favor of still giving it to patients. I think overall the, the, the benefits outweigh any risks. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. Um, I think the, uh, the mortality benefit, yeah, was, has sort of been, um, was preliminarily quite exciting, but yeah, has sort of washed out over time. And um, while that's probably the most important thing, we shouldn't scoff at um, reductions in 
illness time or, you know, time to recovery. Um, you know, there were, there were nine days median time from symptom onset to randomization. Some people may argue that, you know, earlier administration of remdesivir is better, but, you know, practically we're not seeing these patients that early. And um, I think continuing to trot that out is, uh, you know, practically sort of just not going to change anything ever. I mean, we could, you know, we can all sort of hypothesize about when it's bad, you know, this sort of very fine detail of give this at this day, this at this day, but that's just not how it works really. So yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's the Tamiflu of COVID and that we give it to everyone and it probably <laughs> doesn't do all that much <laughs> or, you know, yeah, it does reduce the time of illness, but um, not the, not the money shot that we all hoped it would be. Yeah. Well, it's definitely, a, you know, a moonshot for Gilead. Good for them. Yeah. <laughs> we found an indication for the drug that was developed before. All right. Um, so anyway, yes, that's our, uh, our take on remdesivir. Glad to find, let's never talk about remdesivir again, huh? All right. <laughs> I am so, totally okay with that. Okay. Well, there probably is going to be an act three, you know, act two. Those are going to come out. Are we just going to categorically not talk about them? <laughs> well, act three is interferon plus remdesivir. Less remdesivir. Maybe yeah. we'll just not mention remdesivir in that context. Yeah, we can just focus on the newer, the new drugs, the the new exciting thing that will fail us. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of, let's talk about tocilizumab. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so Dr. Jenkins likes tocilizumab for some reason. He made me review this paper. <laughs> um, this was uh, efficacy of tocilizumab in patients with hospital in patients hospitalized with COVID-19, um, came out in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, was published on October 21st, 2020. Um, basically, this was a negative study. Let's move on. Just kidding. Um, so I was struck uh, initially by their introduction when they talk about a month ago that, you know, a thousand Americans are dying per day um, with 214,000 total dead and just bemoaning that we're still seeing a thousand Americans die per day and we're now at, uh, you know, 240,000 total cases. So how long are, are these numbers going to continue? Um, it just made me sad. But anyway, um, the authors hypothesized that the profound decline that we see with COVID-19 is secondary to a severe inflammatory process that resembles the cytokine release syndrome, which is a markedly abnormal inflammatory uh, state with elevated markers like IL-6, ferritin, and CRP. This state has, you know, previously been described in, in, in other medical conditions, and there's a lot of uh, exciting or, you know, people get really excited about targeted therapies for the cytokine storm, as it's called, and so that happened with COVID as well. The hypothesis was that higher IL-6, or actually higher IL-6 has been shown to correspond to higher levels of SARS-CoV-2 uh, viremia, prolonged viral RNA shedding, and progression to mechanical ventilation and death. So the hypothesis is that IL-6 blockade may interrupt that inflammatory cascade at this stage. Um, and again, this was thought to, you know, potentially be beneficial at a, at a certain time when you're noticing that the patient is progressing into this, you know, inflammatory slash cytokine cascade. Um, it should be noted that um, Genentech, who is the maker of tocilizumab, funded the study. The authors do note that they were not involved in the design or the writing of the trial. 
Um, the trial was conducted in seven Boston hospitals. Uh, the inclusion criteria were confirmed COVID, and they used either a PCR or an IgM serum assay, which practically we're not using at all. So I thought mm. that was notable. That is interesting. Yeah, and then you had to have at least two of the following. So fever, which was greater, greater than 38 degrees Celsius within 72 hours of enrollment, pulmonary infiltrates, or supplemental O2, so two out of those three, um, and one of the following lab findings, a CRP greater than five, a ferritin greater than 500, or a D-dimer um, a D-dimer greater than 1,000, um, or LDH greater than 250, sorry. So one of those lab findings. Um, exclusion criteria included um, requiring greater than 10 liters of supplemental oxygen, a recent history of biologic agents, or other immunosuppression that the investigator thought increased your risk for infection, and very weirdly, diverticulitis. <laughs> I'm sure that has something specific to do with tocilizumab, but I did not look into it, I admit, but you couldn't have diverticulitis and be in this study. Um, this was again, you know, sort of a month ago it was published and, and the remdesivir stuff was coming out while the patient or while this trial was ongoing. And so some received remdesivir, but none received dexamethasone while other glucocorticoids um, were allowed. So again, sort of interesting to look at the evolution of treatment over time here. Um, the primary outcome was intubation or death in a time to event analysis and notable secondary outcomes were clinical worsening on an ordinal scale from one to seven um, as defined by worsening of two in the ordinal scale if you weren't on oxygen or one if you were on oxygen. And then another notable secondary outcome was discontinuation of supplemental oxygen if you were on it beforehand. Um, so, you know, they were looking at intubation or death and then sort of worsening or getting off oxygen. Um, 243 patients were enrolled. Um, 161 received tocilizumab, 81 received placebo. So it was a two to one trial. It was randomized, it was blinded. Um, Notable that the tocilizumab patients were slightly older. 50% uh, of the patients had a BMI greater than 30. There was a little bit more diabetes in the placebo group. And there were a few, there was a, a higher proportion of patients on ordinal scale three, which I think was like in the hospital and on oxygen um, in the tocilizumab group. So um, for the primary outcome, 10% uh, had the primary outcome, which again, which was intubation or death in, in the tocilizumab group and 12.5% in the placebo group. The hazard ratio was 0.83 unadjusted and did cross, the confidence interval did cross one with a P of 0 0.64 and the adjusted hazard ratio was 0.66, which also crossed one, the confidence interval was 0.28 to 1.52. Uh, the secondary outcomes also had hazard ratios or confidence intervals that crossed one. The hazard ratio for worsening on the ordinal scale was 1.11, adjusted to 0.88, while the hazard ratio for discontinuation of oxygen was 0.94, adjusted to 0.95. Um, and then they talked a lot about sort of tertiary outcomes, which were not significant. Um, as far as adverse events, neutropenia occurred more frequently in the, in the uh, tocilizumab group, but less serious infections actually occurred in the tocilizumab group. So overall, they concluded that it was fairly safe. Um, there were 11 serious adverse events related to tocilizumab and three related to placebo overall. But mm -hmm. authors did again note that um, they were not, um, you know, otherwise significant and that the safety profile was acceptable. So, um, 
you know, none of the outcomes were statistically significant, more or less. And mm-hmm. for whatever reason, tocilizumab was not found to benefit folks with COVID-19. And there's been more uh, thought that the cytokine storm and this pro-hyperinflammatory state um, really just isn't as important as we maybe initially thought. And we shouldn't use tocilizumab. That was my or take. It's, it's important, but maybe it's more complicated than just targeting one interleukin-6 in the cascade. I don't know. Yeah. yeah I thought it was an interesting, you know, interesting conceptual study. I heard that a lot of uh, patients down at Intermountain were, were getting this in the ICU. That's totally unsubstantiated rumor. But, you know, I, I, I think it's good that people went ahead and, and did a study to see if it worked. Bummer that it didn't. Um, but honestly, I would have been surprised if it did work. So yeah, yeah. Agreed. I thought it was also interesting that 45% of the patients in this study were Hispanic or Latino. And I think that probably just, I mean, cause you don't usually see numbers that high, you know, most studies you look at the majority of patients in the U S are, are white. And I wonder if this is more just kind of reflecting how that the disease has disproportionately affected certain populations. Yeah, absolutely. They also make the point that the mortality rates between white and non-white patients um, were not different. Mm-hmm. But um, yes, we are obviously seeing uh, socioeconomic, various socioeconomic groups affected much more uh, severely or heavily than 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 you know white people. Um, so yeah, good point. White people, All right. <laughs> Cool. So we're not going to be giving tocilizumab, but we might be giving another fancy monoclonal antibody soon. Well, yeah, I can talk about that. So, um, bam, lanivimab. <laughs> bam, bam. Wait, yeah. Are we just going to, should we just call it that? Bam, bam. I think well, I'm that. I'm definitely not going to call it bam, lanivimab. <laughs> bam, lanivimab. Um, yeah, that Black Betty bam blam song has been thrown around on twitter i think that's kind of funny but anyway <laughs> um ban <Lan> of a map <laughs> received um emergency youth authorization authorization from the fda on november 9th the intended so this is a monoclonal antibody i i actually did not write this down i think it's made by lily um, it, and the intended use is for model, mild to moderate COVID with high risk of progression to severe, severe disease and or hospitalization. And so, um, you know, they did publish the, the trial design here, um, and it's quite large, but the folks who are at risk or who qualify for, you know, progression or the folks that they're targeting are... Um, those who have a BMI greater than 35, CKD, diabetes, an immunosuppressive disease, or are receiving an immunosuppressive therapy. Um, additionally, folks who are greater than 65 of age. So if you have any of those, you, you qualify within the trial for risk of progression. Um, additionally, if you're greater than or equal to 55 and have cardiovascular disease or hypertension or COPD or respiratory disease, you also qualify. So that's who we're, who we're targeting with this monoclonal antibody. Um, you, to get it, you cannot be hospitalized or on oxygen as it may worsen outcomes when, when you're on high flow or, uh, mechanically ventilated, mm. which I have no idea how that would work. Right. I mean, that's sort of interesting to think about. Um, it seems like it shouldn't hurt you regardless, but, um, 
who knows? <laughs> so um, bamlanivimab has been shown in clinical trials to reduce COVID-related hospitalization and emergency room visits within 28 days after treatment versus placebo. This was based on an interim, an interim analysis of a randomized blinded placebo-controlled phase two clinical trial that has 465 patients. Um, and within three days of a positive test, 101 of them got 700 milligrams of bam-bam, or 107 got 2,800 milligrams, 101 got 7,000 milligrams and 156 got placebo. So they're also doing a dosing thing because this is a phase two trial. Yeah. Um, the primary outcome is the primary outcome we should note was change in viral load from baseline to day 11. So um, whether or not that is significant, hard to say. And they note that most patients did clear the virus by day 11, whether or not they were given the antibody. Hmm. The pre-specified secondary endpoint is where the meat of this is coming from. And that was COVID-related hospitalization and ED visits within 28 days. Um, so they, meant, they say that for patients at high risk, which we talked about, um, the secondary endpoint occurred in 3% of the BAM-BAM patients and 10% of the placebo patients, which they say is statistically significant. You know, wait for uh, the full trial, but that's why it got EUA um, and why, you know, you can give it, I guess, if you have it. Um, they know that there were no major differences between doses and reduction in viral load safety or outcomes. And so, you know, I think we'll end up giving probably the, the lowest dose. And I have to admit, I did not look at what the, the, the FDA approved, um, but we easily could do that. Um, you just give it as a one-time IV dose and, you know, hopefully it keeps your patients out of the ER and the hospital. Hmm. So stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. I'm just trying to think like logistically how that drug is going to be administered, right? Because like so much about patient medicine is like telehealth right now. Like, are we all of a sudden going to have just like all these infusion centers pop up all over so that people can go get their bam, bam after they yeah. get positive? Like it just like even getting remdesivir to all the hospitals, I think was a enormous logistical challenge. And, you know, how do you decide who gets this drug and who doesn't? I guess they have their criteria that they consider people are high risk for progression. Um, you know, like if my grandma got it, I'd, I'd, if she got COVID, I'd probably want her to get some Bam Bam if she wasn't already in the hospital. But like, how do you actually make that happen? That'll be interesting to, to see. Yeah, huge logistical challenges. And I think, you know, maybe we can use this opportunity as a shout out to the uh, COVID-19 ID pager. You know, we have folks at uh, our institution who take the mostly thankless job of fielding calls about COVID-19 24 hours a day and basically making these really tough decisions of who gets what and, and why. Um, so thank you, you know, Dr. Spivak, Dr. Imlay. Dr. Gomez, Gomez, et cetera, et cetera. Um, certain, you know, all of you, <laughs> they don't listen. But anyway, um, it'll have to, be, maybe it'll have to just be something like that. And, you know, that's just another thing on their plate, which sounds awful. And so, right, I don't know. Emily and ask you. <laughs> I don't know who gets it. I don't know. Right, right. Can I get some Bam Bam for, uh, for my Nana? Um, I don't know who gets it. I don't know who decides. You don't want these patients going to, you know, you don't want people going to the Huntsman Infusion Center, you know, to be getting this. You don't want picket lines outside of, uh, you know, chemotherapy centers. So yeah. huge logistical challenges. And uh, honestly, my prediction is that we're not going to use much of this and that the vaccines will be, you know, a much bigger deal. Hmm. Yeah, that's a nice segue. Let's talk about vaccines. Yeah. 
Okay, so um, who do you want to hear about, Pfizer or Moderna? <laughs> Which one is going to make me richer? Well, um, Moderna was initially better and does not require dry ice. So let's talk about them. So um, Moderna put out a press release on November 16th, 2020, that was an interim analysis of the COVE study. So they talk about, they, they get, and they, I like their press release better for what it's worth, um, but the highlights were as follows. So um, on October 22nd, they had enrolled 30,000 participants, um, and now they're obviously past that, but um, they had 7,000 patients um, who were over 65, 5,000 with chronic conditions, um, and they said that 42% of participants were medically high risk and that 11,000 patients were um, persons of color. So they felt like they had a very uh, wide, they had a very good population they felt. Um, and so these patients were randomized to placebo or two doses of Moderna's spike protein vaccine. Um, I did not look into very much of the, you know, sort of the, the logistic or the, the pathophys or the physiology here, but the, uh, the M spike protein is, is a, part of the of SARS-CoV-2 and there's sort of a novel delivery antigen delivery system is my understanding these are mRNA vaccines and um, there's supposedly something cool about them I'm now talking about something I know nothing about so if you don't know anything Jenkins <laughs> we'll move forward <laughs> so what you, you you inject the mRNA and then that mRNA actually gets copied by some cellular machinery right to make this and protein so then that your body can make antibodies against it is that yes. how it works that sounds right yes you inject the mrna into the muscle cells the muscle cells make the spike protein which then gets presented to your you know t cells and um <laughs> then you're immune <laughs> wow it's like magic holy smokes all right so anyway, novel, though it is it's supposed i mean you know i think it's worth mentioning that this is a triumph, potentially a triumph of modern science, um, fastest vaccine development by far in history. But anyway, um, the primary endpoint- All thanks to Donald J. Trump. That's right. <laughs> Operation Warp Speed. <laughs> All right. Um, so the primary endpoint was cases accruing within 14 days of the second dose of vaccine. And- it's a little unclear, actually. They, you know, their primary endpoint is cases accruing, but it's only symptomatic cases. And so, you know, I think that means that you only got tested if you develop symptoms. And so, there is this question of still this question of asymptomatic carrying um, that is not answered potentially by these vaccines. But secondary endpoints did include prevention of severe disease and prevention of SARS-CoV-2 infection you know, across the board. So maybe we'll learn more about that in the future. But they had 95 cases within their 30,000, uh, you know, patients who were randomized. So 90, 90 of those cases occurred in placebo and five occurred in the vaccine group. So they, you know, are taking basically 90 divided by 95 and saying that it's 95 or 94% effective. Um, mm -hmm. That's where the number comes from. We're not entirely sure if that's the best way to report it, you know, as, as being 94% effective, but only five cases in the vaccine group um, out of a total of 95 in 30,000 patients. Um, looking at the secondary endpoints, there were, um, I think, 
12 severe cases and 11 occurred in the placebo group. I actually did not write down that number, but I think it was 12, 11 occurred in the placebo group, but one in the uh, vaccine group. Um, and they talk a little bit about severe adverse events. There were, um, you know, injection site pain, um, fatigue, myalgias, arthralgias, headache, and erythema and redness, but it was all less than 10% and, um, you know, overall quite safe. Um, and Moderna supposedly does not need to be stored at negative 80 degrees Celsius. Um, that's so that's, that's a positive. Um, but anyway, 94% effective on the, on the first um, interim analysis for Moderna. And then, you know, Pfizer also has come out with two press releases. Um, the first one was back on November 9th. The last one was actually this morning. The gist of it is that they say that their vaccine is, is 95% effective. They had 170 cases out of uh, 43,000 patients. Um, 162 were in the placebo, eight in the vaccine. So again, 162 divided by 170 is uh, 95.3. The efficacy was consistent across demographics. Um, and uh, again, there were no serious safety concerns for them. You know, they say there were 3.8% of patients had fatigue and 2% 2, 2 had headache after the second dose, but overall quite safe. And um, they're in, in the press release this morning, they say that the uh, emergency use authorization safety threshold is met and that they're going to be moving forward with that within the next several days. So um, theirs does have to be at minus 70 or minus 80 degrees Celsius, but they say that they have containers that are good for storage and they can be used for up to 15 days of storage. Mm -hmm. They say they're going to have 50 million doses by the end of the year and 1.3 billion by the end of, of 2021. Um, so they're full steam ahead. These vaccines, the, you know, sort of the interim analyses without the full data um, are very promising and, um, you know, represent hope, I think, like we said. Yeah, I'm, I'm stoked. I can't wait to get it. Sign me up right now. <laughs> yeah, I think um, there's been some talk on social media and elsewhere about, you know, safety and, you know, 43,000 is way different than 1.3 billion. Um, mm -hmm and long-term immunity and the safety profile is unknown. But um, yeah, I think I agree with you. I would sign up for it. I guess I'll see, I'll wait for Dr. Fauci. If I see him get it, then, then I'll get it. That's yeah. Yeah, so um, stay tuned. You know, we'll probably have to talk about these down the line. And um, I may have messed up the numbers on the Moderna vaccine, stepping back. I think they actually had no severe cases in uh, the vaccine group initially. So don't quote me on what I said before. <laughs> um, and but, I can also correct myself, Donald J. Trump had nothing to do with the Pfizer vaccine. They took no public money in their drug development. Moderna did accept money from the government as well as donations from Dolly Parton. So I think Dolly Parton deserves some credit for the development of the Moderna vaccine. Thank you, Dolly Parton. Absolutely. She also put out like two albums in the last six months or something. I saw that. I was like, she's crushing uh, yeah. pandemic life. <laughs> some people really thrive under these, these dire circumstances. Absolutely. People with millions of dollars. Mm -hmm.